0: There are two kinds of poskim. Some poskim like to make decisions based on rules of authority or procedure, Kla'li They want the rules of halacha to be essentially the same in every context, and not to depend on what type of topic we're talking about, unless there's a Kla'li that specifically talks about that. Um, so, for example, they'll make decisions based on and hey, halacha y'kitalbidim welcome that halacha doesn't follow a student opposed to, to a teacher, halacha y'kira kiva me'chaviro, uh, the wall follows Rabbi Kiva when he disputes with any other individual Tana, Halacha uh, that at least in certain, among certain groups, in certain eras, the halacha follows later authority. Maybe because they get access to the work of the earlier authority, they, they have more they have more data and they make the decision. halacha um, That when you're talking about a d'oraisa halacha, you follow the more stringent position. In And when you're uh, talking about a halacha, you follow the more mekel position. All those sorts of rules. You can find a uh, you know, fairly exhaustive description of these in the Encyclopedia Talmudit, a subcategory of And that's you know, so that's their way of making decisions, they're halakha follows the kolyora, and it's important to understand the Sogio so that you can understand the result, but the way in which you reach a result is by following his abstractions. The other questions really try to understand the specific issue and decide which position is more correct. Now, which is what I call deciding on the merits of the issue. Now, that word merit is ambiguous. It can mean a lot of things. By merit, you can mean the position that best fits the language of the oldest macor you have. Let's say, you know, might even going back to what's pshat in Chumash, or what's pshat in the way which Chazal understood in Chumash, or what's pshat in the Tanaim, what's, what's pshat in the Amorayim, what's pshat in the Amorayim, back the Amorayim's explanation of the Tanaim, and all the way through um, to, our present, uh, to our present day. And there you focus on, you have, there's one layer which you think is... Uh, it's the trap that best fits the meaning of the sources, or alternatively that you think it's the it's the overall flow of the Masarit, whatever fit best fits the overall flow of, flow of the Masarat. Or you might think that it's the um, it's the, the understanding that best fits what you see as the purpose of that area of halakha, leaving aside the question of whether you're just different time to declare, whether this applies to derives at what level and the is that kind of issue. Um, or you might think, or we call it stereotypically brisker that you adopt the Conception, right, your overall abstract conception: What is a star? What does it mean to be in a, in a state of condition? All right, also things, um, things like that. Or it might be that you're dealing with um, not conceptual coherence, but experiential coherence, religious coherence, spiritual coherence, some way in which passing this way makes this whole area of halacha make sense of your experience of Torah, right? Well, here's what you believe to be shemaim or Yashris, right, those sorts of issues as opposed to purely intellectual abstractions um, like Shar. Um, okay. Uh, those two kinds of call it the rule-based and the merit-based, relate to abstract questions, right? They ask the questions, what is the law? And you have to distinguish those from the question, what is the law in a specific case? Alright, we can write the rub I have argued, um, distinguishes these very sharply, um, really between uh, hurrah and din in a sense. The hurrah is about the law, and din is about imposing the law on people. But we don't have to use that particular formulation. We just say we understand that there are cases where you're where you're making deciding generally what's the law on this abstract on this abstract issue. Uh, we hold that young kipper is right? issues like that, and then case law, which is like should this person eat or not. Um, Okay, and we should also point out you know, that there are different kinds of cases. There are cases where uh, all the human interests are on one side and you have to figure out to what extent to accommodate uh, or the halacha should accommodate those human interests. And there are cases like momenaz often when you have opposing um, interests. Um, right, those, are th- those I think, matter less. Perhaps. Um, okay, now what I want to point out is that the same POSIC may be rule-based uh, in law cases and merit-based more issues and merit-based in cases or vice versa Um, right some people might uh, who use Koli-Horoa to decide what the abstraction is might be focused entirely on issues of aesthetic or yashras uh, or health or things like that when they're deciding cases relating to specific cases and people who decide the law based on these overarching uh, conceptual categories might decide that when it comes to a specific case so it's dangerous. To consider the parties in front of you, the law has to be an, has to be an abstraction that then applies to cases mechanically, and so they'll decide the specific cases on, um, on the basis of cholera, granting that cholera includes categories like hefted maruba and things like that, which might mean that the law is different in different cases on the basis of these uh, statements that you can rely on if you in and things like that. Um, okay. We should uh, also point out. Uh, right, so the question, the question we should ask then is, um, how do the merit-based post game account for the existence of all the kollel If you're really supposed to make decisions based on what you think makes the most sense, and whatever your system of sense is, so why are the kollel So the answer uh, is that kollel are either defaults or fallbacks. They're how you make decisions when you can't make your decision on the merits. They result know what the halacha is, then as a general rule, that's not what the here are for. You pass in like the Machmir in De when you don't know which position in the focus is correct, you know which position is correct, and of course if you know the Nechil is correct, you have to follow the Nechil. Well, on the same issue with the uh, if you know the Machmir position is correct, uh, then you have to follow the Machmir. Uh, it can't be that a person wins the Machlokist just by stating any position which is more Machmir or Nechil than yours um okay there is a um right, what you what you could say i guess um is that there's in a sense the people who follow it, who make decisions on the basis of chloe Hora are really refusing to make decisions about the specific issue uh it's uh, a little bit oxymoronic to call them decisors if you want because they're actually refusing to decide i don't know that's entirely but we should point out that both kinds of um, of, of post game can end up turning into a third kind of post which is a post-game refuses to make a decision on either the merits or rules, maybe because they have doubts about the rules, because the rules themselves generate ambiguity. So how does how do you deal with Helk uh, the later authority as opposed to the rule that says you have to follow the um, they have to follow the teacher against the student. Right. Which generations do halachic debates really apply? How do you count? Yochid you uh, Right. What what counts as what, you know, what counts as an individual, They all come from the same yeshiva. They all be rabbi, right? of the same thing, right? What happens if if somebody started off as a Talmud and then became a peer, right? You know, even reverse all those sorts of issues. So you can end up either way. You can end up with a posse who uh, thinks or who fundamentally makes decisions by refusing to make a decision and trying to be yosiel choladeus and to construct ways of living that don't raise um that don't, that don't violate any position at all and that of course the approach of course has its own uh weakness sense, uh as well um right and that can emerge you know it can emerge it doesn't necessarily emerge from shallowness called you know if i care that can emerge because you're so into understanding every position in its own terms that you become right that you become unable to reject any position because you understand every position so well that it makes sense and you realize that it's just a shift of perspective that, uh, makes, that makes you want it to prefer one position or the other, and you don't see any objective justification for preferring really one perspective over another. Now, we also have to distinguish between rhetoric and method. Um, Postgame might set out rules that say this is how we make decisions, but if you explore their decisions, you might not be at all convinced that that's what they're doing. Uh, a classic test, who sets out in the introduction to the Beis Yosef, that what he does is take a majority of the Rit, the and the Ramam, and aside from the question of whether that majority is itself already slanted um, towards Svarti uh, Halacha. But if you actually look at decisions, it's not entirely clear whether the Mechaber follows what he has already determined to be the majority, or having determined what he thinks is the Psach, he makes sure that you can understand the majority. And the same kind of issue occurs with the Mechaber's uh, explanation of the role of Kabbalah and the Zohar uh, in halacha. And that, you know, it could be that we just need a more sophisticated understanding. He's not actually saying that you have to follow a majority. What he's saying is you have to make sure that you don't violate the majority. Or it could be that not all post are necessarily uh, really good at describing their own methodology. I remember a, uh, a study, I think, um, I think it might've been by Dr. Mesh Hammer-Kasoy uh, uh, following um, various uh, great teachers and them explaining what they're doing in their classroom and sitting in the classroom and seeing that maybe teachers aren't so great at knowing what it, what really they do. I tried the same thing with grading rubrics, where teachers you know, try and test whether teachers actually grade on the basis of what they tell students they'll grade on. And in my very small unscientific sample, of teachers at a high school I taught at, uh, nope, really teachers were not good at predicting how they would uh, how they would grade. So with postgame also you have to uh, you have to be careful and sometimes it may also be a function of rhetoric. Um, and postgame can be trying to create the impression they're being mechanical and actually they're being uh, they're being substantive, uh, they're being merit based. Um, right the extent to which a value of Seth is actually just following overwhelming overwhelming numbers or not, uh, I think not. Um, but other people think yes, that's what he says, uh, that's what he says he's doing. Um, and I think there were other post who people thought that about at least earlier in um, in their contemporary post people thought that about earlier in their careers. Okay. Now, actual post um like actual human beings, are generally hybrids rather than ideal types. Um, right, in the same way as when you're reading Rav Salavishik's theology, right, there isn't somebody who's purely an Das and somebody who's purely an Isha Das, um, cognitive and religious, religious man. Um, and for example, aside from general issues of consistency and, and weighting various factors, it might be they have a person who generally follows Koli but there's are specific areas that they think they know really, really well, and in those areas, are they, you know, the areas that they just absolutely know there yeah, they're willing to make decisions on the merits, but that's at such a high bar that they don't see any any way of making decisions in other areas except on the basis of Koli hara, uh, Or the or other way around, there might be person who generally make decisions based on the merits, but there are specific areas of Koli that to them are, for lack of a better term, they're chukim, right? They just don't understand what's going on. They can talk about details, but they don't have an overall picture of the is whether conceptually, um, ethically. And so, therefore, in those areas, they have no basis for making decisions um, other than Hera, So, they resort to Um Also, even postkin who have very strong and self aware methodological commitments uh, might, in some cases, um, if they follow the normal methods, reach results that don't. Cohere with their ideology, like with their big picture visions of things of things about Torah. Uh, that I think happens in both directions um, nowadays, specifically on issues about women's uh, ritual roles and shul and things like that. Um, again, I emphasize in both directions. So, um, so even if you're strong in other areas, there might be just some areas, which for whatever reason activate you ideologically, and it might be that for some people, the issues that are associated with the role of women, and for other people. Uh, perhaps not enough. It's issues relating to the distribution of goods in a society. Um, there are very few, I think, uh, strongly Marxist Toscan now, but it would be fun to see what would happen if there were. Um, okay. Um, all what I've said so far is intended as pure description and to a certain extent as auto description. I'm talking about myself. I don't think that I am particularly uh, consistent on these issues and when I'm not, to some degree, I explain it on the basis of the, of the hybrid models I offer to you, and of course there's always the possibility that my self-awareness is not great about what I'm doing. Okay, what I want to talk about now is um, a conversation about how a particular uh functions and relates to the other, the, what we call the merit-based concerns in the specific area of Hilchus A little bit of background. Um, there are practices in areas of halacha that are revived or go dormant as a result of personalities or technology not just as a result of people becoming from or not being from a classic example of this is the revival of shotness checking in america um, which is often attributed to mr joseph rosenberger of blessed memory who came up both with new methods of testing you can see wikipedia the way in which he made it practical to do mass uh, shotness testing by coming up with what people thought of as a, saw as a viable mode of testing samples as opposed to testing the entire garment. And he also came up with great, catchy ad campaigns and got people to give him advertising space. I remember growing up with the ad of you know, a person being zapped by lightning and coming up and not getting into gun get aid and asking, why am I not getting into gun get aid? And I was coming in all the way through. <laughs> uh, you know, I ate kosher and I, and I kept Shabbos and who else would else? And they said, but you were shabbos. And the salesman told me that there was no shabbos in it. Um, well, not good enough. Uh, I've explained in episode three of the Estelle podcast series that it's that it's not clear halakha, how necessary shotness testing is. It depends on uh, exactly what percentage of garments can reasonably be expected to have shotness in it. But even if you think that. Uh, that, that the percentage falls below the level of tzue, so then there's a general rule that you're supposed to investigate to the extent you can, but not if that imposes um, any kind of tirkha. So the point is that shotness testing imposes a lot of tirkha if the only shotness tester is, uh, you know, is, is hundreds of miles away and rarely available uh, or charges uh, a significant percentage of the cost of the suit and not so much if there's a friendly neighborhood tester who, who will do it in advance uh, your store or if your local tailor will hold it for you and you know and give it back to you in a week and give give your garment back to you and in, in a week altered and checked for shotness. Um, right so halakhically it might be that before Mr. Rosenberger's work it wasn't actually that necessary to check for shotness. It might not even have been a in some certain kinds of cases. And then all of a sudden maybe it became at least a beetle of some kind of a say not to do it. Um Again, I'm not taking any any um, position about I w- what the odds of finding shoteners were in what kind of garment, uh, either, either then or now. But that kind of possibility is at, is at least theoretically possible that the making it easier to check would create a piece of check which didn't exist previously. Another example: uh, you know, in my childhood, lots of from people uh, ate kosher, and when it came to most products, they would read the ingredients and decide whether they're kosher or not that way. And let's suppose that that was actually a good way of getting to the point where uh, products were kosher uh, with a percentage, uh, with a percentage above Myanmar. so with a degree of certainty that meant there was no miyadamasu left, whatever you want to call it, 80%, 90%, 96%, whatever your standard for miyadamasu is. And therefore, if there was no reasonably convenient way of checking, that was good enough. And then along came uh, major kosher institutions and made it possible to look for a symbol, right? So looking for a symbol, checking for kashras, and checking for ingredients became no longer good enough, but it's only no longer good enough because the kashras agencies exist. If the kashras agency ceased to exist, then you could go back to reading ingredients uh, in those cases where the odds of being genuinely non-kosher were below midha Right. So sometimes the practice of halakha changes, even though nothing about the halakha itself changes, just reality changes in various ways, um, and particularly the, interest the capacity to verify, is altered by people or uh, by people or technology. Um, so I want to suggest, um, based you know, purely on anecdotal experience, that it might be that Tzumim and Shabbats uh, have functioned to some extent this way. Uh, I think when I grew up, people um, engaged in all sorts of Shabbat um uh, And when you ask them, well, you know, is, you know, I don't know if anyone asks, but if people thought about it, is this when the they say, well, you know. It's pretty obvious we're all within the uh, we're all within a single city, and people didn't you know take giant tape measures and try and see exactly how far houses were apart from each other, uh, but there was an intuitive sense that uh, Trum Shabbos meant you were supposed to stay within uh, what what we call halachically well, the Daladamos you started in you know within within the Trum of the Daladamas you started in, and that could be judged you know roughly approximately. And then there are technological, um, right? there are technological shifts that, um, there are sociological shifts that happen that our definition of what is a city may have changed from the, can decide how absolutely and convinced you are of the notion that the Talmudic city is built on a model where all the farmers are clustered together in the, and the fields are in a ring around them uh, or in a ring around the walls of the city. So the city is t- tightly packed together so that everybody can walk in different directions to their fields. Um, that, that obviously that's a you know claiming that all cities were like that is a radical oversimplification there are commercial cities very early um, but a plausible claim is that the degree of urban or suburban sprawl that is enabled by the automobile in America is unprecedented and so we tend to think of areas being a single city in ways that would that would have seemed you know, spread apart in rural in earlier eras, and we have to decide, right? Because on Shabbos, we don't allow the automobiles, so maybe our conception of Shabbos space will be based on pedestrians, or maybe the reality that people define the, define the uh, urban space much more broadly creates pressure on, um, on halacha. So that's one kind of uh, technological change that generates pressure. And another is that we have GPS and Google Earth, and now you know, people can people sitting in their uh, right, in their parents' basements, or in their attics, or in the cool technology room off the basement or maybe in the most progressive places in the basement itself, can play with the Google Earth and come up right and come up with the very exact maps of exact right of exactly how far each each house is from each other house in the um in the city, and they can say, look, you know, that looks like a giant a giant city, but right there, look, right right over there, you can see that the houses are than uh, 140 amahs apart uh, we can right, and you know we can measure very precisely according to each measure of the ama. and so it might be the things that were previously thought of uh, by if this is obviously part of your original daladama that the year that you're within which the chum is measured beyond all of a sudden we look at it and we say that according to the halacha as it's written in the books, as we can now measure with great precision over there there's a gap that's ten feet too wide and now it's not, I mean, it's not a city it's really two cities you can't do that walk i happen to you know both in my traveling and now i happen to be dealing with questions about a lake but you can't do that walk around the lake even though the lake is perhaps it seemed to be lake only by the same urban area but there are gaps you can see the gaps on you can see the gaps on the map it's very hard to, uh, to argue with them uh, okay um so, what I want to say though is that sometimes these technological shifts, um, which are in a sense analogous, like there are people who like to to nail things down with technology, are in a sense analogous to people who pass in with Kolihara, people who like certain kinds of certainty and choose certainty over subjectivity. Um, so, sometimes that certainty is a little bit of an illusion. I'll give you an example that, you know, let's say lots of people. Have adopted the position that when you're on a plane you should dive in according to the time zone of the ground if you were to drop a plumb line from the plane right where you are on the plane and so there are these maps produced of exactly where the plane is going to be but the maps of where the plane is going to be are not actually maps of where the plane is the plane doesn't necessarily follow the flight plan that is you know, that was filed months ago when you set it out and so sometimes these maps you know, right uh right because you have you have this what looks like precision but actually is completely inaccurate i'm, I'm i tend to be much less skeptical of uh, those sort of those sorts of models and so it might be that the illusion of clarity that is generated by deployment maps should also be questioned especially when um, when it generates a uh, when it generates a, a real conflict with uh, intuitive experience uh, so for example um and I think we should realize right that lots, there are lots of issues aside from the ones I raised, there are lots, there are lots of issues that in theory could have been asked all the you know all the way through, but yet there don't seem to be any shilos about them. There see you know, I would say it seems to me, right, you can, you know, I haven't checked that there are more restatements of the laws of Tumen written in the past two decades than in the previous two millennia. Um, and they address all sorts of issues that there's no explicit evidence in the coro. So why is that? So some of that is because Technology makes questions possible or makes questions real that weren't the ca- that weren't the case, but it might also be that there are that there the results we're reaching on the basis of clarity are not necessarily correct. So let's talk about uh, one possible issue that is discussed by many of these um, restated And So what's your term? Your term t- is two thousand amud. Whatever your say? Two thousand is Two thousand amud from. the Dalad Amos uh, surrounding you, we're gonna leave out all the complications of how we measure the Dalet Amos, Um, but let's treat those Dalet Amos as a point. So you draw a circle with a a 2,000 amat radius around the point, your point of origin on Shabbos. Let's take the simple case now that your point of origin on Shabbos is where you are or where you live, right? It really could be where you are, where you live, where your Arab is, right? All sorts of issues. Let's, Let's assume that you're in your house and so it starts where you are. And then you draw a square, Around that circle, and then we're we'll going to leave aside the question of where the carpuff in the ear is. But right? Then you draw the two thousand amot outside that square because that square is now your point of origin. Now let's assume that we're going to draw that square uh, with corner, its corners um, to the, right, to the, uh, the four uh, basic directions. Right? It's oriented it's, or, it's oriented We're going to leave aside the question of what it means for the world to be square. And uh, maybe the world's a cube, whatever, inscribed inside the circle of the earth, around the circle of the earth, whatever it may be. Um, and fine, right, so right, then we're gonna deal with the question what shape do you draw, right? Because if you draw 2,000 Mode out straight from a um, right from a square, you don't get a um, right, you don't get a circle. We're gonna bracket all those questions. that's us assume that we've solved that problem, uh, that pro- that problem very easily. Okay, but it's also a given that your Daladamos, um, as we said earlier, the point you start from. Expands to the entire city you're in. Okay, that's great, right? So the entire city you're in is, is Daladamos. And then, um, right, as we explained, that for the purposes of explaining where your tomb is, your Daladamos expand to the square of uh, the city in which you're in. So now the question is, but what happens if in the context of that square, right, I've squared the city, and that square includes of another city that was too far away previously, right? That city starts off on, you know, more than 140, whatever, amot away from my city. So it's really a different city, logically. But now once I square, it turns out that that square captures a corner of that city because the square extends, up. because the square gets me spaces in the corners that are more than 140 amot away. So if the other city uh, includes my square, is included in my square, does that make us one city? And of course, we can complicate it even further, right? Which is what happens if the two squares intersect, right? It's actually, there's a space where neither city is, and it's more than 140 I'm out away from each city, like well, one more than 70 miles away from each city, so the cities are still way more than 140 miles apart from each other. But the, the their squares intersect. Does that make them a single city? If it makes them a single city, do I now draw a much bigger square? Um, or do I say no? It's right, do I say no, it's right? There's it's a single city for the purpose of all my Dalramas, but the Dalramas where those, uh, the squares remain separate. Now, if that's the case, is it also the case that I can t- um, right that I can take even a big city and square different parts of it differently, right? So all sorts of complications um, enter in. What I want to suggest is that uh, allowing a more liberal um, uh, accepting the more liberal position about the intersections of cities and squares, and the intersection of squares with each other, will often uh, help resolve these places where there seems to be a clash. Between the halacha on the books and, and the and the intuitive um, halacha, um, and, 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 you know, and the place, and also maintain the maseret in many places where it seems that great talmidei chachamim were you know walked without uh, without raising any quibbles you know, fifty years earlier, and all of a sudden now is obvious. as outside the chum. That could be because of changes in population and things like that, but that doesn't seem so likely. Uh, but on the other hand, it generates a different uh, intuition, uh, counterintuition, which you may find really problematic, because it might be that if you take this approach, that for example, the entire Eastern Seaboard is one city for the purposes. And that may seem, oh, sure, it's obvious, it's metropolitan area, and other people, say said that's ridiculous, right? We, nobody intuitively thinks that New York City and and Atlanta, Georgia, are the same city, and to say that's the truth, for Shabbos, that you you, know, you wake up in the morning and you walk. You you walk to Atlanta, Georgia, and you you walk through the week, right? And then you're still ready, where you take a car during the week, and you start walking in the next Shabbos, right? And you go all the way up to New York to Georgia, and you're still inside the same tomb. That makes that, it seems, doesn't in any way cohere with either Shavuish Tachtav or your conception of what Hilkha Sarivan is in the Gemara or or the way you understood the halakha has always been Paschkin. So this halakha can resolve certain, this approach, right, could resolve certain conflicts with intuition and could also create conflicts um, with intuition. Okay, now there is a rule of authority when it comes to tzumim, and the rule of uh, authority is halacha gediv hamekil v'erev. So whether erev means tzumim, the or both, we're going to say it means tzumim. Whether it means Arab erev or all aspects of tzumim, we're going to say it means all aspects of tzuchman. Um We're going to say that it doesn't matter for, for our purposes whether there is a category of tzumim Raisa that is bigger than 2,000 naimut or not. We're going to say that it doesn't just apply to machlokus time and Subsequent code, and maybe we'll even say that it doesn't only apply to pre-existing code; it applies even to cases where the issue has not previously been raised, and now you, and whatever person you consult, think that both options are viable. So, if you treat it mechanically, you'll say, "Well, I should adopt the more mechul possibility," uh, as opposed to deciding which one I think is correct on the merits. So, here's what I want to say about the way in which this specific rule may function. Uh, rule may function. Maybe this specific rule, is not actually supposed to be that kind of mechanical rule. It's not supposed to be a rule that says you always adopt a lenient position um, no matter what, uh, leaving aside the question of whether there really ever is such a thing as an abstractly lenient position, right? Doesn't every cool lead to Qumrah? We're going to leave that, that issue aside. But maybe instead, the way we should understand the rule is that it means you, that posthum have uh, more discretion in the area of tchumin than in other areas to construct a body of halakha that coheres with their and their constituent's religious intuition. So as opposed to saying you always adopt the most lenient position, what you say is you adopt the position that generates a law of tchumin that makes sense to you and people, um, and then you have to figure out whether your, your constituency's notion of coherence is, is you know, brisk, as a conceptual currents, I can decide that either the ribula is really part of the city, or the ribula is not really part of the city. I'm going to make my decision on that account, or it could be no. I really want to, the question that matters to me is: Does Tumen limit me to uh, something that I reason to an amount beyond what I generally consider to be my daladamos, or not? Um, as an example, so I want to suggest that there's a way in which you have uh, which poskim who generally decide on the merit gives them freedom to decide on the merits, and that's a way of uh, thinking across those categories. And then we have to ask ourselves: Is um, Zebana yeah. Are there other kinds of Kal aside from Halachik Zev Ramiko be Avil, or Ksamim maybe in some way. right? Um, right? Maybe that aside from just rules that follow that, you know, that just follow that mechanically. Uh, maybe that this is a way of thinking about the way in which Kal I call Merit.